It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who don't listen to that other vaccine conversation <laughs> podcast. Yeah, that one with the longer name. The longer name, it's got a doctor, it's got a mom, it's, it's not the same podcast. It's eerily similar, but not the same. And uh, So my name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonster, a pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And speaking of that particular podcast, mm -hmm. our guest today is actually a sibling of one of the hosts of that podcast. That's exciting. It is exciting. I was waiting for you. <laughs> I was like, ta-da. Um, I mean, I knew that, so I'm sorry. I did not express the surprise <laughs> that maybe I should have. <laughs> My goodness, Karen, who could this possibly be? Dr. Peter Sears has come to talk to us. He is just a nose-to-the-grindstone, not-famous family physician who is an advocate for vaccines, very much wants people to have good information about vaccines, um, maybe wants to clear the Sears family name a little bit in regard to <laughs> vaccines, is an incredibly personal, kind human being. And we had a wonderful conversation with him that you'll get to hear later. Mm-hmm. It's very good. It is very good. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to do a brief around the web here. Nathan, why don't you go first? Yeah. So, you know, I was trying to rack my brain about what to talk about this week. I actually didn't have a lot of new things pop up on the web and have just been so focused on kind of advocacy here in the state. But what has been weighing on my mind, what I realized that weighs on my mind right now when it comes to vaccines is how much of a rise we've been seeing in harassment of families, mm -hmm. uh, particularly families that have experienced loss. Um, uh, harassment by the anti-vaccine movement, and it, and there's been a there's a new article uh, in the Daily Beast called "Anti-Vaxxers Wage Cruel War on Pregnant Women Who Get COVID Shot," mm -hmm. uh, and if you read that, I mean, it is extremely heartbreaking that you see any any family that's willing to be forward and share about loss that they've experienced if the anti-vaccine movement gets an inkling of that they got a vaccine uh, in particular a covid vaccine oh my goodness we are seeing relentless social media harassment cruel language mm -hmm. um we're seeing private harassment um we've seen it in iowa mm -hmm. we've seen for families that have experienced loss um and it's just sickening and it's it's worsening so i want i want people to be aware of that i i do want people to be able to be uh open about their experiences it's super important um for to to talk about difficult things but also be aware of uh that this is a thing and i want people who make laws to realize that if we allow the anti-vaccine movement to get more access to information that's going to result in harassment as well. Mm -hmm. And there are certain bills in certain states, uh, maybe even in this state, that seem to be aimed towards that goal, or at least that seems to be the underlying purpose, if not the outward purpose. And that's frightening to me. Um, 
one thing that I wonder about, and you have, I'm sure, much more insight into this, is what can we as the pro-vaccine community do to support these parents? I know we're all, I know that you do that. I know that Voices for Vaccines does that. I know that various groups try to help, but sometimes I think about, do we have dedicated support, not for the purpose of advocating for vaccines per se, but for supporting families that are targeted by the anti-vaccine movement and helping them avoid that harassment and helping them, you know, just know and understand the science and the, and, uh, and the truth about, about vaccines? That is a great question. And I will say there is support. It is not public facing. Right. Um, so if you or someone you know is being harassed for any reason, but particularly because of loss, email us at info at voicesforvaccines.org or message our Facebook page and we'll get you the support you need. Um, the other thing I want to say is that if you or someone you know loses a child in particular or any human being in your life, don't post about that publicly. Don't make public social media posts and really, you know, help the people in your lives who are losing others to lock down their social media accounts so that it's harder for harassers to harass them. That's sort of my top level tip. Um, but, you know, some, some people are doing incredible work on behalf of the people they've lost. I'm thinking of the Sudden Unexplained Death in Childhood Foundation, SUDC Foundation, and they they get targeted and harassed regularly. Um, they get tar they get targeted and hmm. harassed when they go to D.C. and advocate for more research money into the causes of SUDC mm -hmm. and and other good advocacy work that they're doing. And so, um, just gonna put out there that if you really want to support good people doing good things. Check out the SUDC Foundation. Throw them some love. Give them a donation if you can. I don't get anything for you donate, <laughs> donating mm -hmm. to them. I just am an admirer from afar of the work that they do. I will take a look at that. I'm, I'm familiar with some other kind of similar foundations, but I'll, I'll look into SUDC. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, there are a ton of foundations like that. So if you, anyone that's near and dear to your heart, um, you know, people who do advocacy for, you know, especially investigating the causes, the true causes of early childhood death. Those people always need our support for so many reasons. Well, my Around the Web is pretty simple. Um, our Around the Webs, you'll notice, are not anything about COVID this time around. I think mm -hmm. we focused on COVID a lot. Um, yep. We'll get, well, I'm sure we'll get we'll back to back. it. We'll come back, yep. And it's not about any new announcements Facebook's making because <laughs> we'll see what happens there. Mm -hmm. That's not baked. I've heard um, it before. Mm -hmm. But my Around the Web is about Facebook in general. We did an interview with Heather Simpson uh, on Facebook Live last Saturday. And that is up on our Facebook page still. It's an hour-long I guess, interview conversation between me and Heather and taking some questions live as people were commenting to us. Um, 
So please give that a watch. It was a really enlightening and wonderful conversation. Heather Simpson is the former anti-vaccine influencer who dressed up as measles because it was the least scary thing she could think of. And she also used to put out all the polls. I didn't realize this until I actually talked to her um, (laughs) on Facebook Live. But she was the one who would like put out the polls that, you know, we all used to take um, two-ish years ago. So uh, she, she was really interesting to talk about, really insightful about some of the psychology and thinking about what makes a person anti-vaccine, about what changes minds, about what sorts of supports people need as they're in the process of changing minds. And I was really happy because sometimes when our former anti-vaccine parents come out, we do get ugly pro-vaccine comments that will say things like you almost killed your child you shouldn't like who cares what you have to say which is gross and i do ban people for saying things like that or you know if they're lesser than that i push back and say people are allowed to grow and change Mm -hmm. um but we didn't there was none of that it was just people really grateful for her being so open and honest and giving them access to her and her story so I don't know. Did you get a chance to watch that at all? I listened to part of it. I promise that I will finish it. I mean, it's I, I th- fine. Yeah. The, <laughs> the part that I caught, she was, you know, and I watched that kind of unfold. Um, and I, I, I agree. I think that she did such a nice job. The parts that I heard and the, the other things where I, I, she, things that she wrote, um, of, of explaining that evolution and how those kinds of things happen. And it's, I think, fits well with our philosophy here. We talk about how hesitant families can be swayed, how misinformation sways people, how we have to understand. We can both be acknowledging of the fact that it is dangerous to not vaccinate your child. That is a poor choice. That is a dangerous choice. And understanding of the psychological factors and the uh, the many factors that lead to that choice that are also uh, that are the root of the problem that doesn't alleviate people from their personal responsibility to protect their kids and make those good choices. But we have to be cognizant of those pressures and not just pretend like those don't matter. And it is only that personal choice that matters. So um, to see that explained, I think is very, I, I expect that to be very powerful uh, for families that are on the fence, uh, to be able to see that, that process. Um, and I encourage everybody, if you are, you know, if you see a situation similar to this, where somebody is changing their mind, uh, and, and making better decisions and recognizing, um, the reality (laughs) as far as vaccines, be supportive, give them that benefit of the doubt. That's extremely important. And my top tip is always be a good listener, not an active debunker. Mm-hmm. The mo- the great. most important thing is to support their ability to make a good decision that you know that you that you know you have faith in them that they can get to a place where they can feel confident and make a good decision, and also to have empathy for whatever brought them to the place that they're in. Um, and just, you know, empathy means, you know, listening twice as much as you speak. 
So, um, well, fabulous. Um, speaking of having empathy um, mm -hmm. and um, dealing with loved ones who have some vaccine hesitancy issues, we are going to turn to our interview with Dr. Peter Sears and um, right after the break. So we have with us now Dr. Peter Sears, who is a family phys physician based out of Nashville, Tennessee. And before I ask my first question, I just want to tell you something personal, actually. And that's that when I brought my first baby home, he was really unhappy about being born. Um, he was cranky and he uh, exercised his lungs through crying a lot. And he never, ever, ever wanted to be set down. And I was sort of losing my mind. And a friend of mine brought over the baby book from the Sears Family Library. And you know what? It kind of saved me. Um, and I still am like a little verklempt thinking about how I was like, oh my gosh, it's actually okay to just hold my baby all day long. I thought I had to put him down. And so I have a lot of warm feelings about your family and uh, sort of the contribution you've made. Um, so that's sort of where I wanted to start with was thinking about your family. So you come from a family of physicians and nurses, and now you are a family physician. Can you tell us about your family and how they might have influenced you to go into medicine? Sure. Well, first of all, Karen, thank you, uh, Karen and Nathan, for having me on. Um, I'm excited to be talking with you all and everybody else. Um, so yes, as you said, uh, I come from a very strong medical family background, um, father William Sears, uh, pediatrician, and of course, um, Dr. Jim and Dr. Bob, both pediatricians as well. Um, so I, you know, I, I really, from an early age, had, was passionate about learning about the field and I constantly asked my dad if I could tag along when he did rounds at the hospitals back when primary care physicians still rounded on patients on the weekends. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then spending time in his office. And so just uh, was really, for me, uh, you know, uh, from a very young age, I was just really fascinated by the field of medicine and by taking care of patients, um, keeping them, you know, making them and keeping them healthy. Um, and, you know, that's really what drove me into primary care, allowed, you know, allows a lot of that. Um, I'm a passionate, passionate believer in preventive medicine, in the medical home model, um, and, uh, and, and also allowed me to see, you know, kids and adults, all age groups. So um, been practicing since, uh, was, uh, let's say I got graduate med school in 2002. So, um, so been um, close to 20 years now <laughs> um, out, out there uh, working and uh, owning my craft. So, and you know, here I, so I guess here I am. So, but thank you for the kind words on the baby book. I've heard many, many, many people say, say the same thing. So, but thank you for that. <laughs> Um, thank you for being here. We really appreciate this chance to have this conversation. So uh, part of your family legacy is having a sibling that's written a book about vaccines. And uh, most of us in healthcare uh, consider the book, let's say, inaccurate. Uh, it promotes an alternative vaccination schedule. And I believe that you clearly don't follow this schedule. So can you talk with us about your personal thought process when you're talking about 
sticking with the CDC schedule uh, and their recommended schedule for vaccine. So, you know, I guess maybe start start kind of a little bit, a little backstory on that. Um, so, you know, as a young as a young uh, physician getting you know out of out of uh, out of um, residency, I completed my residency in 2005, um, and actually practiced with uh, my father and brothers for a couple of years in California, um, and then decided to relocate back to Nashville um, in 2008. So, you know, so when I was coming out of residency, um, you know. This is still recent, you know, still, uh, you know, the whole Wakefield thing was not, you know, it was still in fairly recent memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and I believe uh, Bob's uh, first first edition of the vaccine book came out, I believe in 07. So actually while I was part of the practice. And so we, we had a lot of discussions, you know, about that initially. And, and I had a lot of, obviously, <laughs> some some uh, issues with it from the get-go, um, you know, came about from a philosophy of, you know, I guess maybe starting out, you know, hey, I'd rather have somebody take this alternate schedule than not get vaccinated at all. You know, the lesser of two evils, I suppose you could say. And, you know, and, and for a time, I mean, you know, I, I guess there's there's a certain grain of, of truth that it, within a very narrow practice focused kind of environment. He was a very different, very different environment than your many of your typical pediatric practices. It's a, a very affluent area, South Orange County, um, many private pay insurance or private pay or very good insurance. So they, you know, they a very different animal than mo- most, most of us um, experience day in and day out. And so, you know, I, I, I came from a background of that I maybe started out a little bit more pragmatic about the alternate schedule, trying to have a balanced approach. But you know, as as um, you know, as as it went along, and you know, more and more data came out showing there was no benefit, you know, no benefit to an alternate alternate vaccine schedule. In fact, in fact, maybe um, you know, less, uh, you know, may actually be um, more dangerous than than uh, than the t- than the standard CDC schedule. Um, and so, you know, that very early on after the vaccine book came out, I was, you know, moving, moved away from a, well, it, it better than nothing kind of approach that, hey, no, it's, it's really about educating parents about why the CDC schedule is the way it is and reassuring them about the safety of it. And so did a really big turn away from that years and years ago. <laughs> and um you know, and and again, and then not sure as you know. I mean, even Bob's been on record saying he he can't back up his alternate schedule with any type of scientific data to say what he's you know what it, his schedule is any beneficial at all in, in any way. So that's a little bit of background to that. Sure, and I you know you and I graduated uh, from would have graduated from residency rough pretty close to the same time. So I kind of I can see exactly kind of where you were when the information came came out. Um, and I've struggled similarly in terms of like trying to find that balance between, okay, you have a family who's refusing vaccines. Isn't it better to have something that lets them get some the vaccines than none? And that's certainly true. But at the same time, there's the that uh, struggle of, but if we start presenting this as something that's good to delay or, or uh, refuse, uh, then that causes more widespread damage. And it seems like the big thing that is concerning is misinformation and disinformation, right? So do as this good information has continued to come out, when we see something, materials, a book that has 
poor information and misleading, then clearly, you know, we're not doing our, our part in educating families. So one part of the book that we kind of talk about is aluminum. There's a lot about aluminum in the book. Do you find that your patients are concerned about aluminum in vaccines? If, if, if you're not trying to make them concerned about aluminum in vaccines? And, and, and that's a, that's a big hot, hot point um, amongst, you know, the vaccine hesitant and anti-vax uh, groups of people. I mean, they kind of shifted from thimerosal to aluminum as the new kind of boogeyman in vaccines. And um, I, I disagree entirely with with everything he has to say about aluminum in, in his in his book. Um, as you know, I mean, just the very comparison he uses about using the parenteral IV administration as an argument about why potentially the um, standard CDC schedule could you know be problematic is just a it's it's a you can you, as you know parent, comparing. IV parental administration to IM is apples and oranges, and it just simply falls apart at the very at its very at the very start. Um, so that's that's one thing I really um, just when I'm discussing aluminum with with concerned parents, I hit on major points. Number one, first and foremost, it's not even a metal, you know, and and the the book itself doesn't even really say that. <laughs> um, so number one, that's that's what I first start out with, and of course, and then I give the the. the I talk about the ubiquitous, the ubiquitous nature of aluminum uh, salts in nature and in our in, in things we eat and things we consume. It's all around us, and and so when I get to when I have that conversation, it really people are, are usually very receptive and open to this idea, and it just you know uh, that and then of course I talk about what why it's in the vaccines to begin with, <laughs> and how. Aluminum adjuvants have actually made vaccines safer because they have decreased the number of antigens required per vaccine. And this gets to another point, if I can touch briefly on this now, that that's that kind of the, the whole aluminum argument that we obviously, as clinicians and, and people who understand vaccines, falls apart there right then and there. The they co you know, co-opting the aluminum and the too many too soon approach that that um, is often pushed in these uh, in amongst the anti-vax community, and so that those are often combined together as, as part of the same whole. And really, when you actually look at it, you know the the, the amount of you know aluminum salts in vaccines we know isn't dangerous, and also we know that. The number of antigens that a child is exposed to in the first 12 months of life through vaccines is much lower now because of things like aluminum adjuvant. So, you know, it's really the exact opposite argument. And when I kind of frame it that way, people really, really kind of eye opening that, you know, they have. So I've never really heard, you know, from a lot of people that question vaccine safety about that. So, you know, I mean, we we could certainly delve deeper into the, you know, I don't know if we really want to get into the whole blood brain barrier. You know, uh, if you wanted to comment a little bit on that, I, you know, it's you know, I know that's a big boogeyman approach they're taking with aluminum these days. But um, no, I, I mean, completely easily debunked. And 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 really, when you sit down and really take the time with concerned parents and and address these concerns, not in a I'm the doctor, you're the patient, you're going to listen to mm -hmm. me type. But tell them why. Tell them, you know, don't say they're fact they're safe because we say they're safe. We parents really many of these parents need more than that. And I think that 
one big reason why people move towards the anti-vax or the on the fence or the vaccine hesitant group is because they don't feel they're addressed in, uh, to from from their own pediatrician. And I and we and you and I know time constraints are always a problem, but um, sure. I've, I've even taken to saying, look, if you want to take some, I, we don't have time to full, go into this fully now for this particular visit, but if you want to schedule a, a telephonic or I can give you some information, look over it and we can talk again. I really, really feel that that's great. I mean, a, a great approach. And so many, I've talked to so many people that maybe gone down the anti-vax rabbit holes and whatnot. And, and then they, a lot of them say that I was driven away from my doc by my doctor into the open arms of these misinformation sites. So, so I find, I find that that approach has really worked, worked very well for me. So. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I've always said that, you know, there's all these studies that try to talk about how to get the hesitant to immunize, but the thing that can't be studied is the relationship between the pa patient and the family and their physician. And that's always, I think, the best source of helping people understand why vaccines work, why they're safe, help them get good information. And you can't necessarily reach everybody, but I think your approach is spot on. You can reach a lot more people than you think, <laughs> than one might think. I, I completely agree. And I have to say, I really love that you're explaining science to parents. I think one thing that doctors have been told over time is parents don't care about the science. Um, and I, you know, I, I kind of feel partially to blame about that because I'm like, you storytelling, but I didn't mean stop <laughs> saying anything about science. You know, story and science have to go together. Um, and, I, you know, parents want to know when they hear scary things about aluminum or too many too soon, they want to know why. Um, and it's legitimate to ask why. It's legitimate to have that curiosity. And so I really want to thank you for being respectful of those questions because they are legitimate and they do deserve answers. But um, I kind of want to turn now because a few years back in California, there was a fight over a bill, SB 276, which was a bill in California that ended non-medical exemptions for school entry requirement, vaccine requirements. So it meant that the only the only way you could not vaccinate your school with, or your, sorry, say that again, Kevin, clean this up. The only way that you could not vaccinate your children and still send them to school would be if there was a real medical reason to not vaccinate them. Your family name, the name of Sears, was invoked throughout the hearings and um, by advocates against the bill. But I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about how you feel about those personal belief exemptions. Yeah, no, great topic. I thought I'd really like to talk about Karen, and thank you for asking. And I think it's been we're closing on now. Has it been almost two years, uh, or now maybe a year and a half? Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> so time has no meaning. I have no idea how long. It's been. <laughs> well, and, and SB two seventy six that you're referring to, um, and I believe now that I think it, is it five states that now have have done away with religious and philosophical exemptions, and now only allow medical exemptions. I believe five out of 50 states now are, mm -hmm. um, are there. So when I address this issue, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-mandate for, for several reasons. And um, sometimes when people hear me say that, I get some pushback from that because sometimes it sounds like I'm just taking away anybody's freedom. But I like to explain it like this. Um, 
States like New York and California, I believe it's Virginia, um, uh, is it Louisiana, and I'm one other. I'm, no, it's Mississippi, <laughs> Maine. Oh, no, I forgot. Yeah, I think that's right. Mississippi, Maine, New York, California, and West Virginia, I yes. think, are yes. them. Okay, so looking specifically, let's focus on New York and California and say, and I think when we look at mandates, we have to ask, well, how did they get there? How do we get from you know, you could have a religious, you could have a philosophical and a medical exemption to now states like California and New York. Why, why and how do they get to this point? And really, I tell people, first and foremost, um, the reason California now has these mandates is because of the anti-vaxxers. It's their refusal to immunize and having these steadily decreasing rates in certain in certain parts of the state, we'll just focus on California. I mean, alarmingly low, as low as seventy or eighty percent vaccination rates in certain pockets. And so, you know, I look at I almost turn the argument around and say, you know, that that you know SB two seventy six came about because of vaccine hesitancy and because of anti vaccine misinformation, and not the other way around. Not some not some kind of great government conspiracy out to, you know, harm all our children or force us to be, you know, um, force us against our will to be vaccinated, which it really doesn't even mean that mandates does not mean forced. Um, so, so I look at it that way. I look at it to say, look, if we have a state with great immunization rates that allows for philosophical religious exemption, that means that the physicians and the providers and the, and the parents are doing their job. And they don't need further, tougher legislation. They may get there. We're seeing other states. You know, Colorado is discussing this. Um, there's other, several other states that have, that are on the books with with these types of things. But I really, not to be not not to be accusatory, but I mean, really, at the end of the day, I mean, it's really because of these anti-vax movements that these move, that that bills like SB two seventy six came about. And you know, and, and so now you see a move, a big push amongst the anti-vax uh, movement now pushing this, and we're probably going to talk about this, um, the informed consent and the medical freedom model as another tactic in, in the fight against, against routine vaccination. So one other thing briefly to, to kind of tie this all up, and then I'll let a uh, really fascinating study. I don't know if, uh, Nathan, you saw the study, I believe it was pediatrics a couple years ago that actually looked in Vermont about Vermont was a state that had allowed philosophical and religious exemptions, but then okay. way a few years back with the religious exemption, or no, but did away with the philosophical exemption and then yes. only a religious exemption. And you found they followed this and they found, I think, something like a fourfold increase of Vermont parents who moved from the philosophical to the religious exemption. So unless a lot of Vermonters suddenly found religion over that being, <laughs> they're just using another, they're just going from one loophole to another. And then that they're very elegant that really showed it, showed that. And it's not surprising. It's, well, of course we probably figured that, but it's, it's it, just so people wondering, it is in the literature out there that people will, if they don't want to vaccinate their children, they'll use any, any um, exemption available to them. And in some ways, if, if they're the types that simply will not, will not listen to the, their, their physicians about vaccine safety and efficacy, they'll just move the, move the goalpost in another direction, I guess. <laughs> and on the same token, there, there is still evidence that shows that states with just religious exemptions and not philosophical exemptions, they still do have lower rates of refusal. Not everybody just auto shifts, but yes, you do see that increase. 
And we've seen that in Iowa here too. Not that we've recently gotten rid of a philosophical exemption, but we just see those religious exemption rates creep up year after year after year. It's not as if <laughs> there's some new revival, I think, going on. I think it's just that as anti-vaccine sentiment kind of spreads, then people start to misuse that, that exemption. Uh, you guys know people in Vermont and Iowa just are finding Jesus more. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, as, a, as a pediatrician, I hear sometimes anti-vaccine folks claim that family physicians are quote unquote friendlier about vaccines. And I have friends that are uh, family uh, physicians, but I don't know necessarily if that perception is different in the wider family practice circle. Do you think family practitioners in general are pro-vaccine or less likely to be pro-vaccine or what does vaccine friendly exactly mean? Do you think? Well, vaccine friendly, you know, depends on who you ask first and foremost. <laughs> if you have a vaccine-friendly plan, is it's well look at the I'll send you to the CDC website and you can just you know it that depends. We all know a very um, prominent pediatrician who has a friendly book or a vaccine-friendly plan, and maybe we won't go that <laughs> go there. But, I consider um, myself very vaccine-friendly, don't you? Though I mean, I'm very friendly to vaccines. Treat them well. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I, I people mean, are vaccinated. I'm friendly with them. Friendly, friendly to a lot of people, really. No less so vaccine. Right, right. And, and you know, um, Nathan, I, I honestly, I have not really seen much of a difference amongst my family practice colleagues compared to pediatricians, especially if they're seeing a lot of kids. Okay, if I mean, if if a family practice doc has a very small segment of their practice are pediatric, they might not. You know, there. I guess there is a possibility that maybe someone who does less childhood vaccinations, there's a possibility that may be more open to a vaccine alternative type of thing, but I haven't really seen that myself. In fact, I mean, I, gosh, I ran for my first eight years, I was living in Nashville. Um, I was working in community health um, for a great organization called um, Neighborhood Health, has works in a lot of underserved uh, areas, uninsured, underinsured, um, and uh, Medicare patients. And I actually was head of uh, my my particular clinic's uh, vaccines for children program, which I mean you, you all I'm sure familiar with. And in fact, I mean many there we actually had more family practice docs in our in our clinics than pediatricians. We had a, we had a couple of pediatricians, but by and large, most most of uh, uh, most of my colleagues were uh, family family practice docs, and all. All very pro vaccine, so I haven't really seen that in my personal experience. I'm not sure about you if that's something you've seen. Yeah, I, I feel like my, like I said, the family practitioners that I know are all very pro vaccine. I don't generally see a concern with that sentiment, and so I just sometimes wonder about if it is that you see the pediatricians do more of the like online advocacy, and so the anti vaccine crowd tends to just get very kind of anti pediatrician and feel like. There are, you know, in that way, uh, just because we are so vocal, which I hate to say that to imply that family practitioners are not, but I think the pediatricians have done a really good job about trying to uh, be very upfront about that. Um, that's a good, that's a good real, real quick. I mean, that's a very good point. I mean, I had, that would make sense that if, a, a, if you had an anti-vax um, family, it may be, may be more likely to seek out a family doctor possibly. That's actually a very good question. I mean, I'm, being in, I'm in Tennessee and our vaccine, I mean, we have very, very good vaccination rates. So I don't run into that issue here as much <laughs> other parts of the country, but that's probably not a, 
it's probably not a it's probably actually a very good observation from a regional standpoint <laughs> you know since you brought it up um i do kind of want to go back to the idea of freedom and consent um especially the idea of informed consent because it's a term i don't know exactly who led the charge by using the term informed consent. I know it was not Del Bigtree that he just picked up on it and, and took it from wherever he found it. But it it is sort of one of these things where anti-vaxxers say that they're in favor of informed consent. And, you know, I, I'm wondering, I you know, I have my own view of what I think they mean, but I'm wondering how that sort of plays in your practice and, you know, your advocacy. What does informed consent mean to the anti-vaxxers and what does it really mean? And how, <laughs> how is this misuse of the term making everything more difficult for everyone? Well, Nathan, would you like to comment on this first or it's... Uh, I mean, my quick blurb would be that Informed consent is the uh, physician's job to talk and make sure that the family understands the risks and benefits of whatever we're talking about, whatever procedure. Uh, but anti-vaxxers co-opted to mean that everybody has to know absolutely everything, no matter how connected or not it is to vaccines. They want things put into prominence that have little to no scientific basis. And so their basic difference is what we call the, the vaccine information statement, which is info that's given to every single family when they get a vaccine, it should be by law, um, has the essential risks and benefits of vaccines in ways that are uh, for medical literacy purposes and whatnot, something that everybody can understand virtually. Uh, and on the other hand, they wanna give you the insert that is a legal document that's many, many pages long. It lists a whole bunch of stuff that can sound scary, but doesn't actually give the actual benefits and risks to a vaccine, so. <laughs> That's that's kind of my upshot. Right. Totally agree. I mean, I'm not sure if you are aware where this originally came from. Karen, you're right. I mean, I know that the Big Trees ICANN network really is pushing this hard, but um, Informed Consent Action Network for people who don't know that, <laughs> what that stands for. Um, I maybe RFK, I know RFK Jr. also, I'm not sure if one of those two folks began it, but it, it just like you said, Nathan, just another another straw man moving the goalpost type type argument. That's basically every anti-vax argument that is out there. It, the VIS, the vaccine information sheets are more than enough of, 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 of explaining the risk benefits. And yes, you're right. The, uh, the anti-vax anti vaccine uh, movement argues that, well, you need to explain everything that's in the vaccine insert. You need to explain the VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And if you don't do all these things, then you're not meeting the standards of informed consent. Now, number one, I mean, that would probably take <laughs> just, just sitting down and going through all that for whatever reason unnecessarily would take voluminous amount of time. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's not even something that is important because they're, like you said, they're uh, they're not for the uh, the vaccine inserts are for reporting and monitoring and for scientific uh, reporting issues and not for parental use. And, you know, and I think they take that to mean something's being hidden from us, something's being kept from us. And don't don't leave that doctor's office until you have the package insert and, uh, and bring your VAERS database in with you. 
so, and, and again, it's, it's uh, you know, for me, I would say, well, and I've used this argument on, on several occasions. Well, if, if, if that's your bar for informed consent, well, then shouldn't that be the bar for every single medical procedure, medical right. treatment, every single thing you're offering a patient? That would be essentially, if you're talking about going into having your gallbladder removed, demanding from the surgeon, I want all the data on the device you're using. I want all the background on, 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 on the history of gallbladder disease, the background on the different surgeries that have been used over the past over decades of, of doing this procedure. I mean, I want a copy of every single study that that's been out there regarding gallbladder removal. I mean, so it's, it's a little hypocritical that anti-vac and the anti-vaccine movement just like hyper focuses on informed consent when it comes to vaccines. Well, if that's your, if that's your bar, then it needs to be the bar in every, in, in every aspect of medicine, which is obviously for any reasonable individual would just be pointless. <laughs> I mean, I was just you, thinking, can you imagine informed consent about Tylenol? <laughs> well, and one of the points is you can always get that information. It's not as if anything, even on the history of the surgery or whatever, like if you want to talk with your doctor about what you've heard or whatever, you should be able to do that. But to, the idea that you would have to go into that level of detail about every single procedure just doesn't make sense. And it also isn't something that most families need. That's not the level of understanding. The other part of informed consent that is then that that, that anti-vaccine movement will take is say, okay, if you are required to get a vaccine for your job, then you don't have informed consent because you don't really have much of a choice. It's for your job. And this obviously isn't news to you, but for our listeners, you know, that's bogus in the sense that informed consent is a physician patient or medical, you know, healthcare worker patient situation, physician patient. You are making sure that your patient understands this information uh, and has at least the option to read about it. You've given them that opportunity to learn everything they need to know before they agree to it. If they're agreeing to it because of circumstances that are outside the office, that's a different thing. A, a person doesn't have a, a much of a choice if they have to get a certain surgery. There are critical surgeries. They don't have much of a choice, uh, especially if it's for a child. You can't just refuse a child a critical surgery, but that doesn't mean you still get informed consent. You still are informed before you go through with the, with the surgery. And then and re briefly, uh, you know, um, I think one of the reasons of informed consent uh, argument, the anti-vaccine movement uses, it plays very nicely into the uh, conspiracy theory aspect of it as well, that, that things are being hidden from patients and parents. And when we could have, a, we could have an entire podcast on what a vaccine is, what a vaccine insert is and what it isn't, what bears the adverse event reporting system, what it is and what it isn't, what the, what um, uh, VC, VCIP vaccine, VICP vaccine injury compensation, but what that is for and what it, what it, that's an entirely, and, and that'd be a wonderful podcast. I'm assuming maybe y'all have done something like that. Um, that's me in Tennessee coming out. I throw out a y'all every now and then. <laughs> so, <laughs> but right. it does fit nicely into their conspiracy theory model and, and, just to kind of piggyback on what you said, Nathan. <laughs> so you have, I have only gotten to know you over the last, I want to say, couple of years. And you kind of told us a little bit about what brought you into medicine and a little bit about how your thinking shaped as you kind of went from kind of learning about your brother's book and then learning more. Um, what has brought you into being 
into actual vaccine advocacy in the last couple of years, like more vocal vaccine advocacy, let's put it that way. Well, and this is kind of a, you know, there's a little bit of a difficult topic for me to discuss when you're, you know, talking about um, a family member who I love very much. And, uh, you know, um, so I always kind of want to be respectful of, of that. And, and I know you are, you, you are all as well. I really truly believe that uh, a big driving force for me to, to become more of a, at least somewhat more of a presence out there was um, frankly SB 276 and the protests and things like that leading up to and then after the legislation was finalized. I just saw a very disturbing trend amongst um, the anti-vaccine movement and I felt that um, Maybe um, maybe Bob was uh, becoming a little bit more of a um, it was was more and more losing that objective sense about what what vaccine education and what vac- and what um, vaccine safety and efficacy should be about and what um, maybe what role he may be contributing to. Um, vaccine hesitancy and declining vaccination rates, which as you all know, the World Health Organization just last year listed as one of its top 10 greatest threats to um, worldwide public health. Uh, And so I just realized that, you know, even though I'm never, you know, I don't have all the books and I don't have all the, you know, you know, I'm the, uh, I'm the unfamous Dr. Sears. (laughs) Some people would maybe say the infamous Dr. Sears. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is that a three amigos? He's not just famous. It means you're, yes, go. You're not just famous. But, uh, but, you know, I I realized from, you know, I'm a, at the the end of the day, I have a, I have a last name that I could use for, um, uh, to be a va- an advocate for vaccines and maybe send that message out that um, uh, unfortunately, whether or not this was intentional or not, um, sadly enough, the, the Dr. Sears name is more and more being tied to the anti-vaccine movement. And I, I, I'm online all the time and it almost never a day goes by when I have somebody express surprise that, wait, I thought the Dr. Sears were anti-vaccine and it's really just not the case. And so I think that's one of the big reasons why I felt, you know, this is a, this is something that I could, I could, uh, I could help educate and, and inform and discuss with, with patients, especially um, the, the one of the, some of the people that my heart goes out to the most are the young parents who maybe don't, they don't have the scientific educational background. I mean, what you, maybe you have a young, a young parent with a high school education or, or, or more, but just doesn't have the, enough education to really be able to understand the pro and the anti-vaccine movements. And these poor parents get into these groups and are terrified. And they're, they're confused, they're scared. Um, they're in some cases bullied and even threatened uh, by some of these more hardcore anti-vaccine uh, uh, Facebook groups and whatnot. And it it's just, it's sad to me. It really is. It's, um, it's frustrating. It, it's, you know, it, it's, as you know, frustrating, it's, it's, um, it, it's difficult sometimes for me. So I think that that also, I do, I do um, discussions with many young parents who are just, they're just trying to find out well, what is, what's the right, what, what, 
I need answers and I'm confused. I'm scared. I don't know where to look. I don't know where to turn. And that's another reason why I feel that um, maybe, maybe Bob's kind of lost his, uh, his, his message in the, in the midst of all the hype surrounding anti-vaccine um, uh, conspiracies, frankly. Um, I don't know if that answers your question too much, but uh, that's, that's a fantastic answer. That makes perfect sense. And I just wanted, you know, Karen and I are thankful for your voice and your advocacy, and it's been great to get to know you over the last couple of years. Um, Karen, do you have other questions for yes, Dr. Sears here I today? I do. I've got one more question before we bid you adieu. Um, but I do want to say it has been lovely talking to you today. Um, and you know, I mentioned before that I'm really grateful that you explain science to parents, but I'm wondering if you get the parent into your practice who says, yeah, I want all the vaccines, but I'm worried because my sister doesn't vaccinate her kids. What do I do? Um, and you know, without going into your personal story about it, um, you have some practice discussing vaccines with someone you love who doesn't completely agree with you. So what sorts of advice do you have for people in those discussions or how to handle, you know, things like family get togethers and all that sort of stuff? What kind of advice can you give having lived a little bit of that yourself? That's a great question. Um, and yes, a lot of, uh, a lot of parents have, have dealt with this and it's a big, it can be a big, it can be a big strain on family dynamics. Absolutely. Um, you know, because it's, you know, it, it's, it's a diametrically opposed system of belief. You know, there have been difficulties in, in our family dynamic. Absolutely. Um, you know, but I tell people if I have a patient who, who asks me how, you know, how, how to deal with it, first and foremost, um, when you're dealing with loved ones who have chosen, you know, maybe, you know, go to towards more of an, you know, anti-vaccine stance or, um, you know, a modified schedule type stance, um, you know, it can be really tough. It really can. Um, there's, I don't have any good, easy, easily packaged answer, um, because I think all families are different. I think that if a family is inherently, I, I believe if a family is inherently close, they find opportunities to maybe just help them get together more by understanding each other's point, point of view. Um, if a family is, is good communication dynamics, I find that's probably more likely easier than maybe a family who deals with some dysfunctional issues. A lot of times families who are a little bit more dysfunctional, the, things like that obviously often drives them apart. And so I, I've actually on many cases, on several cases, not many cases, I've actually recommended family counseling, you know, inter-family counseling. Um, as a way, especially for, for those to maybe have some struggles and all families do, but maybe if a family has more issues than others. I mean, I think that's actually been said, I've had several uh, parent, parents talk to me about that. And so that would be, it could be an option, um, but there's really no easy answer here. And honestly, <laughs> you know, I just, I, uh, many cases, honestly, many cases, I've also had many parents say, you know, we just don't talk about that. Sometimes <laughs> that's all you can do. I don't know, Nathan, if you had any um, any insights into that or if you've had experiences with that. <laughs> um, yeah, I. every once in a while it kind of comes up uh, and we have family where we have to have those discussions that are difficult. 
Um, I think on the part of us as their doctor, just being as available as you can and trying to arrange those times when they'll come in together is extremely important. I do sometimes remind them that in these situations, if it's truly a disagreement and one parent wants to immunize and the other doesn't, you know, the, the rights of the parent who wants to provide their child with the standard of care are generally going to win out. And so they have that right to do that. That's not an easy thing. And I never recommend doing things behind anyone's back, you know, and one of the considerations is always, you know, are you, is this relationship safe and there's no chance anyone's going to get hurt. But, you know, so I do counsel sometimes families that yes, you do have the right to get your child immunized if you choose to do that and courts would side with that. And, and most doctors are going to side with that. So that's, something to consider. But when it comes to actually trying to get families to come to an agreement in the same place or, or um, you know, a compromise, although that's, you know, can be dicey too, what a compromise looks like. Um, that's just takes a lot of time to, uh, takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. For everybody. Well, um, it's, it's no, no easy answer with that one. To, mm-hmm. You know, that is, that is one case where one size does not fit all. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. You are such a kind and um, smart human being. And uh, even though you aren't famous, you haven't been on TV, um, or you know, actually maybe you have been on TV and I missed it. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> you weren't on The Bachelor or anything. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, it. I'm so glad that there are doctors like you in the world uh, to really kindly guide parents to where they need to be. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for coming on our show. Yeah. And I thank you so much, Karen and Nathan. And uh, if I could just really briefly uh, leave you with a quote that um, somebody we we know very well and on from a scene talk and other Facebook pages sent me a really cool quote from um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with somebody uh, with David Suzuki is that he's 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 very famous and he, uh, he's more of a Canadian um, science researcher PhD and he does some broadcast work but the issue of this a really hotbed and this this really speaks to vaccines and really politics in general about personal freedom here whether it's um, the COVID vaccine or regular routine childhood immunizations. He really had a really cool, good statement about how anti, the anti-vaccine folks um, are using pers- the personal freedom argument about why they should not be forced or mandated in vaccines. And he has something really cool to say about this. He quotes, a lot of folks are saying it's their right to decide whether or not to get a shot, that it's all about freedom. The thing that bugs me is that freedom comes with responsibility Otherwise, it's just licensed to do anything. And it, it really does. It, uh, our, our freedoms do come with responsibility. And just like that quote in Spider-Man, with great, with great um, power comes great responsibility. It, it really does. Um, that really is the case when it comes to, to personal freedoms and medical freedoms as well. And, and we see this play out among schisms in, in our society politically and also amongst the vaccine arguments. But I think that really strikes to the core about what freedom and medical freedom really should mean. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great last word to end on. So thank you so much. And thank you, all of you, for listening in and participating in this podcast. We're so grateful to have you. 
Um, one of the things that came up in our after conversation, Dr. Sears was talking about how important it is to confront vaccine hesitancy right now and to really do a good job of, you know, as we were talking about that, that listening and taking people through the science um, because the COVID vaccine is so important to us right now. so important to getting back to getting back some of the parts of our lives that we miss, you know, hugging people and being around human beings and knowing how tall they are and understanding that people have legs and don't just exist on our computer screens. So um, the, that's my fantasy anyhow. But uh, the that vaccine hesitancy is really important right now when we're talking about COVID-19 vaccines. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I am Dr. Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm also the chair of Iowa's uh, Immunization Coalition, uh, Iowa Immunizes. So please find me in multiple locations. Find Iowa Immunizes on Facebook or on Twitter. Find me at PedsGeekMD on Facebook or on Twitter or my blog, PedsGeekMD.com.